This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did the films of the 1980s provide the most valuable life lessons? I'm certain some 80s movie provides the answer. Once again, it's time for the 80s. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. Another day filled with sunshine here in Ohio. Yeah, sure. It was, I think, right? I don't know. You're outside more than I am. Yeah, it was beautiful out today and yesterday. So, hey, today we're going to be talking about lessons we learned from 1980s movies. Because we learned everything during the 1980s, including from films. And a little bit later, uh, after that, we'll be speaking with Hadley Freeman, uh, who is an author and expert on all things 1980s, but including 1980s films. In fact, among the many things she's written, she's written a book called Life Moves Pretty Fast. And if you don't know what movie that's from, why are you listening to this? No, okay, wait. They're listening to this show to get educated, (laughs) if they don't know. The subtitle, The Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies. The sub-subtitle, and why we don't learn them from movies anymore. So uh, we'll heal from Hadley in a little bit. But before we get to tell anybody, subscribe, review, rate, follow, join us on Facebook. And in July, because this is only for July, okay? If you're holding off and you're thinking, I'll get to it, you got to do it now. Please go to our Facebook page and find out how you can nominate us for a Podcast of the Year Award. This is our strategy. We win an award we get more awesome guests. It's simple. It's a one-two-step thing. So do that. Okay, right? Yep. Okay, so that's all our business. Now let's get caught up on 80s news. So in 80s news this week, we've talked about this a few times. It's been a long time in development now, but uh, in fact, it's gone through, what, two directors, but it's finally heading into production, Labyrinth 2. Well, we are just hearing now from WeGotThisCovered.com, and they claim they have a source that's close to them, and a source that they trust because they say that this source has given them uh, information that's proven to be true before, including that young teens were going to be the stars of Ghostbusters Afterlife, and that a Now You See Me 3 and a National Treasure 3 are in, in development, all of which turned out to be true. So they trust this source when they say the folks making Labyrinth 2 are interested in bringing back David Bowie. <laughs> I don't really trust that site, to be honest with you. Oh, okay. I, I think they talk a lot of crap. I, I don't think, I, I'd be surprised if 2% of what they cover is true. But hmm. You know, as you say that, I feel like I've heard that before, like on other podcasts I listen to. I, I think they're just throwing poop at the wall and hoping it comes true. Yeah, predicting that there was a Now You See Me 3 and National Treasure 3 probably isn't a huge stretch. We probably could have done that. <laughs> no. Yeah, the, the bringing David Bowie back thing, I, th- I think uh, I think that's a stretch. Well, they claim that, of course, the people creating the Labyrinth 2, or Labyrinth sequel, want to bring a CGI Bowie back for a cameo, much like they, like they did Carrie Fisher at the end of, what was it, Rogue One. They brought uh, Peter Cushing back for mm-hmm. Rogue One also. Yeah, there was two CG characters in that movie. The, uh, the only way I'm okay with this is if they bring him back as a puppet. <laughs> That's the only way I'm okay with it. 
that and the all puppet children of the corn. So he's a puppet. So Henson, as you, Henson's probably making the other puppets, right? So you make a David yeah. Bowie puppet too. Yeah, just make a David Bowie puppet. I'm sure nobody would notice the difference. Mm. Now, as you imagine it, they make a puppet that looks really like, or try to try to make it convincingly like Bowie, or something happens to him, and now he's a puppet. He's like was cursed. Yeah, I, I think you go with that angle where something happened to him, and now he's a puppet. But you know what? I don't even care. I don't even care if they explain it at all. He's just a puppet now. Can we get Frank Oz to do that puppet's voice? <laughs> yeah. So he has that similar voice to all the characters that Frank Oz does. Mm. <laughs> Goblin King I am. <laughs> what was the thing you were saying about pants last week? Oh, pants. pants magic pants. Pants, magic pants. <laughs> waka waka. And all those things. Okay, hey, in eight other 80s news, now this is a story that broke before we even did our podcast in February of 2019. We learned from The Hollywood Reporter that Chris Hemsworth is going to be playing Hulk Hogan. <laughs> the biopic is going to be is going to be coming from, and again, this is old news. This is the old news part. But it's going to be coming from the director of The Joker, Todd Phillips, and will be uh, produced co-produced by Hulk Hogan and Bradley Cooper. I bring this up now because Chris Hemsworth just announced that the role will take him, quote, uh, will make him rather, quote, put on more size than ever before. And he was just talking about the mustache. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Is, is he, um, it's a long way I to go to get him to be Hulk, I think. This is a weird one for me because I like Chris a lot. Yeah. I'm just not sure if he can pull off Hogan. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a stretch, but you know what? I, I'll hold judgment on this one until I see a trailer. Yeah, I wonder if this, so you know, Todd Phillips obviously just did The Joker, which is a real heavy, dark film, but most famously he do, he's done, you know, comedies, broad comedies. I wonder what the tone of this will be, because as soon as I imagine Chris as Hulk, it, it seems like a joke to me, almost like a sketch. Yeah, I just, like I said, this one's a tough one to gauge if he's going to play Hulk, because you don't know if you're getting like the Thor character, yeah. where it's kind of comedic yes yes i would assume that's the angle they're gonna go with that's what i yeah that's how i imagine it too which i think would be bad but i don't know if he if he pulls off the whole leg drops and the whole got his hand up to his ear in the crowd thing and he's <laughs> yes. really good at that part of the movie oh. i think that'll sell it <laughs> that's gonna be in the trailer guaranteed yeah uh, the film is supposed to follow the uh, it's it, it Phillips describes the film as an origin film showing how Hulk became Hulk or Terry became Hulk and the uh, origin of Hulkamania. And of course, Hulk's career began in the 70s, but it peaked in the 80s, you know, when we were kids watching wrestling. So Hemsworth says regarding uh, playing it, uh, and he says that the movie's going to be a really fun project. As you can imagine, the preparation for the role will be insanely physical. He'll also, as he points out here, I have to take a, quote, deep dive into the rabbit hole of wrestling world, which I'm really looking forward to. Of course, he's going to have to dye his hair bleach blonde and, I guess, become mm-hmm. that sort of orange tan color that Hulk is. They also have a gigantic task of casting everyone else for this movie. Mm. Like, oh, Because like, you've got mm-hmm. Macho Man. Mm-hmm. You've got yeah. Piper. I mean, there's so many wrestling characters that are iconic that mm-hmm. are a part of that scene yeah. that it's going to be crazy who they bring in to, to play them. Mm-hmm. And and even just Andre the Giant, because they they have to do the the famous uh, oh, yeah, body slam. Yeah. So who who the <laughs> hell are they going to get to play Andre the Giant? That guy's talk about a transformation. That guy's going to yeah. have to put on a lot of weight. Let's see who could be Andre the Giant. I mean, he was what seven seven or something like that. He was a mountain. That's Let's what he see. was. 
trying to think if there's even an actor now. Well, you know who? Remember, uh, Jason Siegel does a great Andre the Giant impersonation in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love you, man. Hmm. And then Mother Ronald Peanut. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing who's in the cast and seeing that first trailer because that's going to either tell me that this is awesome or garbage. See, now I want an Andre the Giant puppet. You've got me thinking about everything in terms of puppet. Wouldn't it be funny to see Chris Hemsworth slam a body slam a puppet? Wouldn't it be insane if the next gigantic trend in Hollywood was puppet movies? <laughs> yes. Was that a question? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> in other 80s news, so uh, this is an exclusive from Deadline.com. The headline reads, Empire Strikes Back leads at the weekend box office. Which sounds like a headline that ran, you know, uh, <laughs> 30 years ago. But uh, no, this weekend, because 23 years after the special edition, so the special edition was the last time Empire was in the film, uh, or in the theater, rather, in 1997, uh, Empire Strikes Back has, has been running now, uh, th- this weekend, in a number of different uh, drive-ins in other locations, and breaked in an estimated $175,000. Uh, this was across 483 locations. Um, they are estimating that uh, by the end of the weekend, it should take between uh, four hundred dollars and $500,000. Um, there's been other movies that have come out as folks are trying to warm up everybody to come back to the theaters, including Ghostbusters, Jurassic Park, Jaws. But uh, so far, it seems like Empire is crushing it. If you look at drive-ins in general, they always have these retro nights. Oh, okay. I didn't realize. Yeah, but the problem is, is theaters are always open. Ah, so if you, with all the, the theaters closed, I bet if you went back and looked at like what was the top movies of every month for the last, I don't know, 10 years. Right. They're probably all 80s movies. Right. Because of the retro nights. Hmm. I got no information to actually guarantee that's true. <laughs> but if Empire's doing it right now, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that would be true. Like you said, uh, you Ghostbusters. Know, and- Ghostbusters just had a big thing at the drive-ins. Yeah. Hey, that's cool. Because it's like, what, it's a throwback movie and a throwback experience to go to the drive-in. Yeah, my favorite part is uh, our drive-in that we go to. Yeah. Um, there's a train track right next to it. Oh, so like yeah. halfway through a movie, <laughs> a train could come just rolling through it <laughs> and just destroy the sound. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to that drive-in movie theater, yeah. yeah. But I do I do like that one. I think I saw it and a train did come by, but I don't remember being too noisy. But yeah, you're right. It's it's a distraction. They don't pause the film or anything. <laughs> no, no. The train just comes through and you just sit there and you're like, well, thank God I'm watching Goonies tonight because I could just <laughs> yeah. mouth this one for them. So it says drive-ins, despite repping a third of over the thousand movies, theaters that are open right now, continue to rake in most of the business with the majority of the top grossing 135 locations in the U.S. being drive-ins. Speaking of drive-ins, so if they, if in August when Bill and Ted comes out, if this is the only way to see it, are we going to a drive-in? I think I might just go to a drive-in, period, to see it. Yeah. I think I might go back and do this old school because I love the drive-in. Yeah. It's fun. I think I may just abandon the theater altogether. Yeah, and it's better than it was drive-ins when we were kids. You had that one speaker that you had to put in the window when you roll up, but now it just comes over your radio. We actually, we just take a boom box with us and sit in lawn chairs outside the car. Huh. There you go. And yeah. A lot of people do that like that now. The only problem I ever have with drive-ins is because it's never as dark as a movie theater. Some scenes are hard to see if it's got like dark scenes, you know? Yeah. I generally only go though to see older movies. Yeah. And they're not, they're not filmed quite as dark as the new ones are. All right. Is that it? I think that covers 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so hey, today on the show, we're going to be speaking about the lessons we learned from 80s movies. If you've got a lesson that you've learned... 
chime in on Facebook and let us know. And that'll be cool. Uh, and in a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with Hadley Freeman, the author of a book called Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies, and why we don't learn them from movies anymore. So, you know, look, we've we've talked about this before. You know, a number of the reasons we love these movies, people want to just dismiss it as nostalgia because we saw these films during an impressionable age. We learned that the neuroscientists said that during your teen years, your brains are like sponges in much the way they were when you were just you know, two years old. And so therefore, whatever you learn at that period has a special place. Nonsense, I say. Or that's fine. But in addition to that, these movies are awesome. And one of the reasons they're awesome is because during those impressionable years, we actually learned stuff. We did. I want to say I learned more in movies and from songs than I learned from my parents about things. Oh, definitely. I I think we could do a whole episode on what I learned from Billy Joel. He was like my Obi-Wan Kenobi that would speak to me about love and romance through, you know, his albums in the 80s and some from the Mm. late 70s too, I guess. I guess mine would be uh, Wasp and Kiss. (laughs) Yeah, that would be my love guidance for the 80s. Mm. So what have you actually learned? Give me me a little something something you learned there, buddy. Well, one of the earliest things I remember learning as a kid that made an impression on me was, and one of the earliest films in the 1980s that I remember seeing was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's something that stuck with me was that, uh, you know, this character of Indiana Jones was brave and dashing and, and all these different things. But he would put his life on the line in order to be able to rescue these, uh, you know, precious artifacts. And so something that stuck with me through my life was that you have to take risk to get reward. I remember this stuck with me so much that even as an adult, I was probably in my late 20s talking to a friend of mine and trying to counsel him about some stuff he was facing in life. And I said, hey, what would Indiana Jones do, man? Come on, take a chance. You can't get that, you know, gold idol without uh, taking a chance. Yeah, actually, uh, that brings me to uh, what I learned from Indiana Jones. So same thing. Um, I remember as in high school, we went to Oktoberfest. Um, I had my Indiana Jones hat. I actually had a hat. And I somehow managed to get beer because I had that Indiana Jones swagger with the hat. Ah. And I was only in high school. I managed to get a beer at Oktoberfest while on a school trip. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the lesson you learned then? You can do anything when you're indie. <laughs> That's the lesson there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Even without the whip, you just had a hat. All I needed was the hat. It well, was awesome. Well, I guess you had the swagger too. You pointed out. If, you if I had the whip, yeah. I might've been like running Oktoberfest that year. <laughs> yes. Okay. Other lessons. You got one you want to offer or you want me to just... Uh, Well, on the same note, from 80s movies, I learned that underage drinking is completely acceptable. Oh, okay. Just the movies, so many films that... Yeah, just so many movies. It was just, seemed like everybody drank underage and it was part of the movie, so... Like Weird Science is a good example. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, that one's a perfect example of um, you need to get to a bar to get the drinks. (laughs) And yep. no one will question uh, if you pretend like you belong there. I see. So trying to buy it at a gas station or something may be trickier than if you can get into a bar. If Yeah, if you just walk into a bar, you can get served. So <laughs> I feel almost like we should qualify the life lessons that we've learned. Oh. Um, or maybe add a disclaimer. <laughs> just because they work for Will or Ray, and mostly this is going to apply to the ones that Ray tells you he learned, doesn't mean they'll work for you, kids. Middle-aged children? No. Okay. I'm sure lots of folks listening uh, understand and agree with you entirely about that. 
Okay, here's a real obvious one, right? And it, it comes right off the title of, of Hadley's book here, Life Moves Pretty Fast. Mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller. There's a lot of lessons to be extracted from that, including this idea that, you know, from the line that he says at the end of the film there, that you've got to stop and smell the roses, you know? And, and, and I think the bigger lesson maybe, or, or as, as how it's exemplified in the film is, he actually takes a break from the routine to go do something else, you know? So he... In the film, I'm sure you've seen it, quits, not quit schools, plays hooky, and then does a bunch of cool and amazing things, you know, like this podcast, even doing this podcast today, you know, we said, hey, we're kind of stuck in this one way of living life. Let's try to mix it up. Did you ever uh, play hooky in school and do something cool? Of course. <laughs> of Absolutely. Course. You went to that bar when you were underage with a hat uh, on, with an well, Indiana well, Jones hat on and got yeah, beer. Well, yeah. But that was a school field trip. But um, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Was that really a school field trip? Yes. When you had the yes, hat on? I was a part of a club, a <laughs> German club. Okay. I took two years of German in high school. Yep. And they took us to Oktoberfest <laughs> for a, a school trip. Okay. So um, uh, I got distracted now. So yeah, you, so you yeah, have oh, played hooky. Yes. Uh, playing hooky. Yeah. We did lots of dumb things playing hooky. Uh, trying to, you know, obviously you can't one up Ferris, but you do the best you can. And I'll say we did some things. That's as far as, you <laughs> notice I'm not saying anything. I see how far Ray's going to go. Yeah. Uh, that's as far as I'm going to go with that one. Oh. We skipped school. We went to, uh, we got these things called uh, the ledges. Mm-hmm. We go there and have some fun mm. and hang out there all day. So. Now the ledges, is it called the ledges? Cause geographically there's our topography topographically there's uh, actually there's, a ledge or a cliff of some kind it's, it's yeah kind of hmm. it's like uh, a wooded area where we live it has more to the name but i'm not even gonna give that away oh, i see mm. this was more like a place where people went to look at like nature hmm. but during the day when we were supposed to be in school nobody else was there oh. so it was, it was fun to go there i see mm-hmm. now if you had to guess and i'm asking you to do you think i've ever played hooky yeah i do oh Everyone's played hooky at least once. I don't think I ever have. And I would find it hard to believe that I did, only because I'd be terrified of getting caught. Hmm. And the, this is the extent of me playing something even close to hooky in high school, was the school I went to, you could uh, have lunch at the cafeteria, or, because it was in a city, you could have lunch at a place on the block of, of the school, of the where the school was, you know, and, and there was one place across the street that was, you could also go. That was it. Hmm. But when I was old enough to drive, me and my two buddies, we would sneak off to my car and we would drive like, I don't know, four or five miles to the McDonald's. Oh, yeah. sweet. And I was still terrified of getting caught. <laughs> there was, uh, I think it was my junior year. I decided that I didn't want to have a study hall. So I just had two lunches back to back. Yeah. For like a whole semester. Mm-hmm. So the first one, uh, we would be, stay in the cafeteria. We weren't allowed to leave for lunch. Yeah. But there's an Arby's like within walking distance. Yeah. So the second one, because I didn't want to sit there for the, you know, I don't know what the hell I was doing, but so we would go to Arby's for the second part sometimes. Yeah. And they would always just sell us food. But, you know, high school kids walking in. Yeah. They never even said, hey, aren't you supposed to be at the school? They're like, yeah, money. Yeah. And then, and then we'd come back to school after we got our Arby's. Mm. But we would walk over there from the school, like in plain daylight. Everyone could see us doing it, and no one ever said anything. Oh. Oh. They must have seen Ferris Bueller, too. <laughs> All right. So um, do you remember the film Roxanne? 
starring Steve Martin and written by Steve Martin, I believe. I don't remember who directed it. Did he direct it too? No. I, I don't know, but I recall the movie, yes. Okay. From that film, a little more somber sort of lesson, maybe, or not somber, that's not the right word, serious lesson, was uh, about self-esteem. Um, if you remember in the film, he had a, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, not a parody, but it's a take on, um, shoot, what is that uh, French uh, story with the guy with the big nose? Cyrano, Cyrano de Bergerac. Cyrano de Bergerac. Wow. So he has this, you know, gigantic proboscis. Got a big damn nose. Got a big honker. But no one can get to him. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, people you know, pointed out and people insult him, et cetera, but he always finds a way to manage himself through it and get the upper hand. Hmm. I felt like as a younger person, you know, I was working on that. I had a short temper when I was younger and as I came up, was working on trying to be chill. It wasn't until years probably in college studying some kind of Eastern philosophy that I learned how more to be at peace. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, at the time, yeah, it's like this dude is someone to be envied, that he can be witty and cool, even under pressure as folks are, you know, picking on him essentially. Yeah, that's a a big part of what we learned in the 80s was how to deal with bullies. Hmm. You could either do like he did, which was just ignore it and be cool. You could form some elaborate plan that takes everyone you know, half the city... To, you know, make it all work out. Hmm. Or you have the other one where at three o'clock, you just finally punch him in the nose. <laughs> Wait, what was this? What was that other one with the elaborate plan? Oh, there's always one where like they got the, they're running through the halls or whatever. And like the janitor kicks the garbage cans over and stops and you're running this uh, way. Yeah. And yeah. And then like there's some construction workers mm-hmm. down the block who help you out. And yeah. And eventually even like back to the future, they're covered in <laughs> Well, you remind me, I guess another lesson maybe I learned was from a 1980s film about bullies, My Bodyguard, mm-hmm. where uh, Matt Dillon is the bully and uh, was it Adam Baldwin is the bodyguard. I don't remember the actor who plays the kid who needs the bodyguard, but a lesson to be learned there for me was I just need to befriend someone who's physically larger than me <laughs> and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. So that was my plan. Yeah. I went with that. That's a good plan. Yeah. Uh, here's another one. Karate Kid. And this is something that stays with me today. Karate Kid, I learned that... Um, Almost anything can be a lesson. And this probably drives my family crazy because, you know, I turn anything into a show me sand the floor kind of moment, you know, <laughs> but I even do this for myself. So, so I guess the lesson again is that any, you can learn something from anything, from any experience could teach you some bigger lesson. And it, or it could be something small where you just use an opportunity to do something mundane, t- turn it into a physical exercise, like taking out the trash yesterday before I put it in the bin. I lifted the bag high over my head with my right hand <laughs> and I put it down and I did it with my left hand. Had to be, you know, even. So if someone's like, you know, lift ah. the trash, that might be some form of blocking at some point or something. I don't know. Mm. If you ever get in a fight, yeah, I would not recommend using the lift the trash technique. <laughs> <laughs> what if I'm fighting Andre the Giant puppet? Maybe that would be necessary. Uh. Big. I gotta reach up high like this. <laughs> Um, here's one, uh, risky business. Mm-hmm. Is there any lessons that you can offhand think that you would have extrapolated from? Yeah. Um, you can start a business from your home and it could be very lucrative. <laughs> this sounds like those ads you see, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Make off $500 a day working from home. Click here for more. <laughs> yeah. But back then they would have been a TV commercial, you know? Yes. <laughs> one of the other things about it is, in thinking and trying to refresh my memory, I found this one on a few websites that suggested the lesson to be learned from risky business is dance like no one's watching. 
I like that one. Except I would I would exchange dance for the word fuck. <laughs> this raises so many questions. First of all, first of all, well, maybe just one question. What is the opposite of that? The antithesis? I don't know. Look like people are watching? Yeah. Do it Wait. like you're in the business. Hmm. That might be better advice, actually, though. I don't know. Are you talking about when he's on the train? <laughs> yeah. Oh. But you know what? I guess the train was empty, so yeah. Because they wouldn't necessarily know if there's... It would be great if that, they did that scene, and then he cut to one dude who's just sitting there like, uh, <laughs> what like was a that? Hobo, like a train jumper? <laughs> yeah. That one guy who's... Uh, he's no longer with us, but played the hobo in so many of those movies. <laughs> like, they yeah. live... Like a like a boxcar Willie type. <laughs> yes, he's heating the beans in a can over <laughs> over fire in, in the subway car. <laughs> he's like, uh, he's just trying to be quiet and not rattle the can. <laughs> it's like, don't blow it, don't blow it. Something's going down here. Yeah, okay, that's not the lesson I learned, but yeah, that, so there you go. There's something there. Um, say anything. This is another one I saw on a website. I don't remember exactly how it was articulated, but the idea was to make big romantic gestures, you know, for, I guess for someone that you're interested in. Did you make any big romantic gestures in uh, the eighties or in high school? Not my style. Sorry. I remember one time, I don't know if this is a big gesture, but there was a, 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 a girl that I was interested in in high school. We wound up dating for a long time. This is still when I was courting her. I don't think we were dating yet. I was trying to get her attention. I put, and we would talk like every night we were, you know, we were, you know, we both knew we were going to wind up dating, I suppose. We both liked each other. I knew she was at school rehearsing a play for school. So I, I was able to drive now because I was, you know, 16 or 17. I drove to where she, her high school in the next city over and I found her car and I put flowers on the windshield, a bouquet of flowers, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I left and went home and was like, all right, we talk tonight. She's going to be so, you know, grateful and this is just going to help again, you know, romance her. She never mentioned it. Hmm. Never mentioned the flowers. And I thought maybe something happened to flowers. So somehow I worked out a way, hey, anything special happened today? Um, no, not really. Maybe you got flowers. Oh, yes, that's right. I did get flowers. The um, This guy that's in the play with me, Glenn, put flowers on my car for me. <laughs> How did you know about the flowers, Will? Uh, yeah. Some that's guy actually, funny. Some guy in the play that liked her apparently took, took credit. Again, so this is back to when I still had a hot temper. I was like, what? <laughs> I think I probably blew any romance that was created by, possibly created by getting furious with Glenn and wanted to hunt Glenn down. <laughs> All right. You got anything else? Um, yeah, I, don't, I think that covers it. I think that's everything you really need to learn from the 80s movies. So, hey, in just a moment, we're going to hear about other things to be uh, gleaned from our favorite films in the 1980s when we return with our guest today. Hadley Freeman. Our guest today is a columnist for the Guardian newspaper in the UK. A prolific writer, her work has also appeared in numerous other publications, including Vogue US and UK, New York Magazine, and Harper's Bazaar. And our guest is also an author, having penned books including The Meaning of Sunglasses and Be Awesome. 
Most importantly, regardless of the media and whether directly or tangentially, our guests' work often includes in-depth analyses or sly references to 1980s films. There's no better example of her expert knowledge of 1980s movies than her 2015 book, Life Moves Pretty Fast. Our guest's most recent book is a more personal, biographic portrait of her grandmother's secret history. A columnist, writer, and 1980s cinephile, please welcome to the show, Hadley Freeman. Hey, Hadley. Hi. I will. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining. Uh, first thing I want to tell you, it strikes me that your name, it seems like a name straight out of, out of an 80s film. You know, it's... <laughs> This is the protagonist of some John Hughes film, maybe. Uh, we, we've had other guests on who sound like villains uh, from 80s films. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Who sounds like a villain? I like that. <laughs> well, we had a guest on who was a statistician who helped us determine whether 1980s had the most one-hit wonders, and he, he looked at the math, yeah. or the, the, the data. His name is Todd Kerpelman. Oh, that is a good name. That sounds like a principal in a John it's, Hughes Yes, movie. that's what we thought, too. <laughs> or he's racing a yacht in a regatta against the, you know... Whatever. But it's true. John Hughes did really like unusual names like Sloan, Ferris, Bender, et cetera, et cetera. So Hadley does kind of fit in there. Yes. And I, now you make me think I should probably do a whole other study as to the impact John Hughes films had on babies' names in following years. You know, how many Sloans yeah, yeah, and yeah. Ferrises have we gotten since then? <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk to you because uh, every time I, you know, uh, Googled something about some topic I was researching for the show, your name came up because you already wrote something about it, which is, oh, no. you know, that's fantastic. You know, uh, when we're trying to, on our show, prove objectively that the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture, we'll fight your decade. <laughs> and the work that you've done, you've done a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, the research, okay. including your book, uh, Life Moves Pretty Fast. And anybody listening to this show know where that knows where that quote comes from. I won't, I don't have to mention it, but um, the lessons we learned from 80s movies and um, like it suggests, there's a number of different lessons that you, you, you go into, uh, including uh, true love isn't just about the kissing parts, how to be a man, women are interesting, things that you hope we had learned just from growing up in the 80s, but you, you point out we did and many oftentimes in, in the films that we loved. Just as a threshold thing, you know, you talk about this 30 year rule. Uh, can we can you explain a little bit uh, about what do you mean by that? So I have this theory that pop culture, when it's you know when it's happening, so the pop music that's in the charts now, the movies that are in the cinemas now, tends to be denigrated by the mm. grown ups, the older people who write for newspapers and you know write opinion pieces and uh, do snotty jobs like I do, <laughs> um, because that because pop culture is not aimed at. 40-somethings or whatever, 50-somethings. It's aimed for kids. So it takes 30 years for those kids to then grow up and have those snotty jobs. And they can then say, actually, it was the pop culture from (laughs) our youth that was great. So that's why like you and I, Will, we're now Mm. saying it was our youth that was great. Our pop culture was great. Because obviously what you grow up with is what seems both the norm and the best, because it's so exciting when you first encounter stuff as a kid. Having said all that, I really do maintain 80s movies are the greatest decade of movies. Right. Yeah. Hey, you're on the right show here. Uh, and yeah, we, we've, um, I think I've mentioned on prior episodes, some neuroscientists, you know, suggest or determine that there's, I think there's two points when we're most susceptible to sort of brain development and uh, absorbing information or just developing our personalities. One's really young and one is in our like late teens, you know, oh, which right. they said accounts for in part how much teenagers sleep because of all the sort of, you know, brain. <laughs> that's what my, that's what my daughter tells me anyway. I don't, I don't know if it's I true. I like that. I like 
Um, but I agree with you. Aside from nostalgia, I think, as you've proven again in your book and many articles, that there's an objective angle to be made. Uh, and one of the ways you cover this in your book is by distinguishing how movies were made then or the business of movie making as compared to today and how that ultimately plays into the what would you say quality of movies or the messages. Yeah. Could you touch on those, th- the three factors? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the really big things is in the 80s, um, a movie would make 80% of its takings from domestic market. So in the US and right. 20% from the foreign market. And now that's really reversed. It's 80% overseas market, uh, 20% domestic. And on the one hand, you think, okay, that's cool. Like Hollywood is now aware that countries outside of America exist. Yay. <laughs> the downside of that though, is it means they don't spend that much time on script because everything's going to be translated. What they want is stuff that appeals universally. That means special effects and, uh, you know, guns and shootings and chases, which is why you have things like the Marvel movies now and why the Mission Impossible franchise is just this never ending cash cow for Hollywood studios. Um, and you don't have specificity. And I really think specificity is such a big thing in 80s movies. So whether it's about the Illinois or Chicago suburbs, I should say, of the John Hughes movies, um, whether it's about the real New Yorkiness, for example, of When Harry Met Sally um, and all the New York references in that film, um, whether it's even about weird things like the farm crisis of the 80s, which is kind of what Field of Dreams is all about. <laughs> and when the farms yeah. out in the Midwest were really suffering, you know, they could then make this movie about this Iowa guy who had a farm and is going out of business. I mean, mm. you would think now they would say that won't play in China and it right. you know, may not. But it has this charm that makes it so enduring today. So that was a really, really huge thing. The other thing was is that the studio system was totally different. So now what they what studios tend to do now, first of all, the studios all been bought up basically by companies that don't have much to do with movies. So they're sure. you know, they're basically massive conglomerates. And what they want now is tentpole movies. So it's just like one it used to be one big movie and it could act as a tent over all these media movies. It doesn't really work like that anymore. What they want now is just lots of big movies and movies that don't cost anything to make. So Instead of having all these mid-range movies, which is what we have, which was often what we think of with '80s movies, so things like the teen movies, things like the rom-coms, um, what you get now are just these huge, big blockbusters and then tiny indie films. Um, and I have nothing against tiny indie films, but they're often hard to access for a lot of people until streaming came along. And obviously, streaming has changed things again since I wrote my book. Um, nice. And it's how a lot of entertainment now has shifted to TV and streaming, which is a really different experience from going to the cinema, I think. Um, so those are some of just the huge factors that have really changed. Yeah. And you mentioned streaming and it seems like, you know, so your book is from 2015 and it's and, and mm-hmm. a few things have happened. One, streaming is a huge thing. And then the other thing is, you know, the sort of the, I guess, Disney takeover of the world, you know, where yes. now they seem to own, you know, to your point about the Marvel studios, now they own Marvel and Fox and yeah. a lot of these yeah. studios that are cranking out these big... So would you say that it's worse or is that maybe that's too uh, pejorative? Um, it's, 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 it's strange. I think for a while it was definitely worse. And, but I've seen things since that give me more hope. I mean, I really love that movie book smart that came out last mm, year to right. me that had a kind of eighties teen charm. Um, what I, what I don't think we get so much are those big blockbusters that aren't just about explosions. So like, one of my absolute favorite movies is Ghostbusters. Sure. And obviously Ghostbusters is very special effectsy, but it's really, really script driven. It's a very script driven movie. You know, it's made by the guys, made by Harold Ramis who wrote it and Ivan Reitman. And it's 
you know, Saturday Night Live feel to it. Um, you don't get that so much with movies. I know people love things like Guardians of the Galaxy and things like that, but they don't have a script sort of bottom line to it. It's still driven by the special effects. Right, right. Um, and and you also, you make that point about streaming being a different experience. And I think maybe you touch upon this in your book that, you know, we, we keep hearing this phrase so much now it's become, you know, overused, it's trite, that we're in a golden age of television which is fine. And we do have some great writing on TVs. They're able to, on TV, they're able to do things that they can't do in cinema. You know, have these long sweeping story arcs over many episodes, which is great. And many of them are very good, but yeah, it doesn't have that uh, communal experience uh, that we had in the eighties where you'd have one blockbuster for the summer, like a Ghostbusters and everybody's talking about it. I can be in my home now and I don't, my wife could be watching something else. My daughter's something else. And at the kitchen table, we're not talking about our, you know, pop culture anymore. No. And also when you're watching at home, you're off, often double, double screening. I can never even say that probably double screening. So, you know, you've got breaking bad on the TV and you're looking through Twitter on your phone mm. and, right. and it's not quite that same intense experience. You know, Judd Apatow has written a lot about how his most memorable cinematic experience was queuing up to, oh, sorry, that's, that's me being English there, oh. lining <laughs> to see Ghostbusters the weekend it opened and the feeling of going to the cinema in right. the middle of the day when it first opened and everyone's excitement about that. And I think we people, kids don't really get that anymore. I mean, I remember when I went to see uh, Batman uh, when yeah. that first opened and that was hugely exciting. I like the cinema was packed out. I went to like a three o'clock show with my dad. You know, I'd never seen anything like this on a big screen, everyone gasping together. I mean, I don't want to sound like some old crushy person <laughs> in my rocking chair, but I will never forget that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, a, you know, I remember the, you know, the first time I saw get out is right after I, one of my kids, you know, some of my kids were born, um, was just on my sofa in my living room with my husband. And okay, I remember that, but it wasn't, it's not quite the same experience of going to the cinema and experiencing this all collectively. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, Batman, the, the, the marketing, if you remember, they had that marketing that teased it for months in advance. I mean, you just saw a bat symbol someplace and you weren't sure what was happening. Warner brothers got scared because folks were so concerned it was going to be campy because Tim Burton was directing it and Michael Keaton was the star. So they rushed out a trailer that has no music, but the, all of this built into so much, this excitement, um, yeah. right. That we don't have that anymore. Dang it, yeah. I want that back. I know, I know, that real big hit. Because now it's just, we have this, oh, sorry, that's my dog. You can <laughs> probably okay. hear the Very background. excited about the 80s. Yeah, very excited. This overglut of big blockbusters. Everything is a massive blockbuster. It's yep. it's because we don't have, I mean, you know, even something smaller like Lethal Weapon, like that could be a smaller thing next to Batman. We yeah. don't have the kind of mid-range stuff so much right. anymore. And certainly not the kind of mid-range comedies and rom-coms we used to have. Yeah. And you bring up uh, Judd Apatow. And one of the mm-hmm. things that uh, you go over in your book, as I mentioned, uh, in uh, Life Moves Pretty Fast, Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies, is how uh, about men, how to be a man. And you, you talk mm-hmm. at length about uh, Ghostbusters, but but before that, you talk about Top Gun and a number of other films. Yeah. And, and you juxtapose the, the representation of men in films in the 80s as compared to Judd Apatow films, Yeah, some of them. And uh, you theorize why... Um, the 80s may be responsible for the representation of men we have in film today. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, in the 80s, like, you know, I don't want to just keep going on about Ghostbusters, but it's always such a great, fruitful source of examples. Um, You know, the plot line there with Bill Murray is that he's basically made to stop being a bit of a dick next Mm -hmm. to Sigourney Weaver. Like Sigourney Weaver helps him grow up. And 
this is a very different presentation of men from what we had certainly like in the forties with Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant, sure. but in the seventies when you see these kind of gruff masculine men, like you know, Al Pacino, yep. uh, Dustin Hoffman. And suddenly we're getting these, these overgrown doughy man boys basically in, in the form <laughs> right. of, of some, a lot of these comedians and in the eighties. And that has so influenced you know, how men are presented in movies today. I mean, Judd Apatow, all he makes are movies about women teaching men how to grow up. Um, obviously, that's not entirely true of the 80s. The 80s also had enormous amount of machismo, you know, right. from Arnold Schwarzenegger to, you know, Tom Cruise. Um, although it's funny to think of Tom Cruise as so machismo, but certainly in, in Top Gun, he is. And that kind of homoeroticism of male friendship was a real thing that kind of started in the 80s. Um, and that still exists, this idea of men as protagonists of the relationships of the film and the women exist to help them grow basically but in in part if i unless i'm misremembering uh you made a distinction in the sense that the men at least including in ghostbusters were adults they seemed to do adult things and were interested in maturing whereas now we have you know the characters are frozen they don't want to grow up they want to play video games for the rest of their lives or or whatever yes yes sorry i should have made that clear i mean bill murray wants to grow up it's not this kind of women nagging men to grow up, which is what we see mm. a lot now, particularly in Judd Apatow films. Um, and it's men who act, who also distinctively act like men. They're not sitting around just acting like, you know, overgrown 19-year-olds, basically. Right. Um, as silly as the Ghostbusters are, they're obviously grown-ups who are able to go to a bank and sort out, you know, payments on the firehouse. They're right. not like the guys in Knocked Up who are just squatting in a house and smoking weed all <laughs> day. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I had to, we, we uh, spoke to somebody a few weeks ago um, about uh, some of the problematic films in the 1980s. And yeah. although he didn't write about Ghostbusters, he theorized, I bet if I looked at Ghostbusters, just like you point out in your book, it would be deemed sexist because of, uh, in particular, how Bill Murray's character behaves. And he said, well, here's, and I, we immediately rejected that because we love Ghostbusters. <laughs> We're like, no, that can't be. Um, but uh, the test he gave was, he said, uh, you know, if, if, Bill Murray's character, Peter Venkman, were according someone in your family. What would you make of him? You know, and I think, oh yeah, I guess the way he approaches her, I, that, I wouldn't feel comfortable. Well, but- I don't know. I don't think like I. I don't see Venkman as being so bad with Dana. To be honest, mm-hmm. I think Venkman is bad at the beginning of the movie when he's literally giving electric shocks to that <laughs> poor, <laughs> poor kid. Keep the five bucks. Exactly. And trying to seduce this hot 19 year old girl. I mean, (laughs) that's Venkman at his worst. Like with Dana, he's just kind of a bit ridiculous. And I interviewed Ivan Reitman for the book. And there's that great line that Sigourney Weaver says when Venkman's like wandering around her apartment and like fiddling with the piano. (laughs) And she goes, you are so odd. And it just like (laughs) punctures this kind of, you know, you know, magical vision that we all have around Bill Murray that he can behave how he wants. And it's hilarious because it's Bill Murray. It's like, yeah, he is odd. And she yeah. like shows that and she's mm. in control of the situation. Yeah. I like how you pointed out too that the other males in his life don't support his misbehavior. Oh, so- yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it's also not that dynamic that we get in a lot of comedies now of like the male friends resenting the, the protagonist growing up, you know, resenting right. girlfriend coming into the group. I mean, that is such a common trope now in modern comedies. In this, you know, the, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, they love Dana and right. they want Nightman to stop stop behaving so weirdly. Right. Um, and in Ghostbusters 2, which is not great. I don't even, it's like very late 80s at that point, but it's not a great film, but I still stand by Ghostbusters 2. Sure. Um, they are sad that he and Dana didn't work and they entirely right. blame Venkman for it. Right. And they're protective of her when she asks to, for them to uh, maintain her privacy when they're 
going exactly. to visit with her. And, and to be gentle with her baby. And like, they are, they are a nice group. <laughs> now, this is just anecdotal because I, I'm not a journalist like yourself and I, I don't do a lot of, I do enough research. <laughs> I do what allows me to do. Um, but it, it seems to me that another th- thing that maybe why men are represented differently, and I think men are different now, uh, is because of the 80s in a different way, because we're the first generation that had, I believe has the technology to continue our mm. childhoods indefinitely. Yes. You know, watch the movies we loved, have easy access to the music, et cetera. You know, have, even download the posters we had on our bedroom if we wanted to, you know, whereas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Um, and what's kind of weird, I find, is that our children also slightly continue our childhoods. I mean, mm. when I was writing my book, I interviewed loads of teenagers and sort of 11 year olds. And I was amazed at how they all love, you know, The Breakfast Club, Back to the Future, Indiana Jones. You know, right. when I was a kid, I was definitely not in into Beach Blanket Babylon or whatever <laughs> things my parents were watching. I was not right. into Frankie and Annette. Um, and I wasn't really listening to the Beatles and all that. But like kids say they, they still listen to like Michael Jackson and stuff. Like the, the pop culture of the 80s is still so much in the atmosphere that it's easy right. to forget <laughs> in your 40s that, you know, time has moved on slightly. Right. Um, so I think that is really true that we can all continue our, our youth forever. You're right. I, I I take credit often for introducing my daughters to 80s films. We just watched uh, Karate Kid and 1 and 2. Uh, a couple good. of weeks ago, we watched Ghostbusters 1. My nine-year-old was afraid. And then she watched 2 and the 2016, the Paul Feig one. She loved them all. Um, mm-hmm. We just watched Bill and Ted yesterday. I think Bill and Ted 2 might be tonight. But you're right. If they didn't like them, they just wouldn't like them. But they, they happened to and... You know, share I mean, them with their friends and so on. Totally. I mean, that's why I think 80s movies are so underrated. I mean, these movies really endure. Like, yeah. You know, if I watch teen movies from the 50s, 60s, I can guarantee you they'd probably be pretty junky. <laughs> There'd be one or two exceptions. But, the, you yeah. know, the, they are so divorced from how from any kind of world that I would recognize, even though it's right. only like you know, 20 years yeah. before I was born. And 80s films, it's just not true. I mean, every kid I know has seen you know, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, all that stuff. Bill and Ted. I mean, this is still a very current thing. I'm yep. glad you mentioned Bill and Ted. I think my career peaked this week. So oh. I was asked to write the liner notes for the new edition of the Blu-ray of Bill and Ted. No way! Thought, That's it. I'm That's retired That's amazing. Now. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Very exciting. I was, I was so thrilled. I was like, I can just write for 1,500 words about how much <laughs> I love Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, so. Uh, and, and also in your book, so the, the flip side of this, I suppose, or, or the same side of it, is your um, your chapter on, uh, well, there's a few things. Women are interesting, and mm-hmm. successful women are sexy as hell. Yeah. I think the thing that struck me as, and I first saw your article about this, where you sort of uh, you pulled out some excerpts from your book when writing about um, Working Girl and um, Baby Boom, yeah. was that... Again, just, you know, anecdotally thinking, hmm, the 80s, and I wanted to be able to say the 80s was great for everybody. And then I was thinking, well, wait a second. We've got a lot of gratuitous nudity. I know we've got mm-hmm. some clearly women that are just put in film to be objectified. Yep. Uh, no question. But I was shocked, really shocked or surprised to see this perspective. And um, I guess, and certainly grateful. And and my <laughs> wife confirmed some of it as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, how the 80s, maybe the last decade, right? To provide such, uh, oh, I guess, um, you know, I don't know, many examples, I suppose, of, of women in a different light than we see them portrayed today. Yeah. I mean, what we see a lot in the 80s is a lot of women in boardrooms, a lot of really high powered, mm. successful women. You know, take you take a movie that 
is still watched today, although I would argue it hasn't really endured that well, which is Crocodile Dundee. Um, <laughs> I mean, in that movie, what we often see also, I should say, and this is a perfect example, is women who are more successful than the men in the movies. And Crocodile Dundee, right. you know, she is way more successful than him, clearly. Like, she is in charge. She has all the money. She has the job. She knows her way around New York. Um, and she just sort of takes him under her wing. And he is not threatened by that at all. Right. Like, that's totally fine and same in baby boom which i like a lot more than working girl i know i'm basically alone in this but i think baby <laughs> boom is actually a really interesting movie um it's made by nancy myers who i totally still worship sure. but if you compare baby boom to what nancy myers makes now i think that's a really illustrative example of how examples of wealthy women have changed the movies i mean i still love nancy myers i'm not knocking her but you watch modern nancy myers movies and you don't see women who are working. You see kind of mm. women who are sort of running picturesque businesses out in mm. Santa Barbara, but in a kind of non-threatening way. Uh, what you see in in Baby Boom is, you know, uh, the JC character played by Diane Keaton is like the boss. She's known as the tiger lady in the movie. Mm. And she is basically the boss of this bank. And, you know, people who know Wall Street can explain it better than me. And <laughs> she's got her boyfriend, Harold Ramis, and he is not threatened by that at all. It's kind of hinted at that she's more successful than him. They both work on Wall Street. And the reason they eventually break up is because she adopts this baby or she inherits this baby. Like that, it's not her job that drives him away. It's, right. it's this baby. And that is really the reverse of what you get in a lot of movies today. So take Bridesmaids. I really like Bridesmaids. I enjoy it. I love Paul Feig. I think he's an adorable man. Um, but that movie, which is supposed to be so woman friendly, is about a woman whose bakery failed. So already a safely mm. feminine job. She's been humiliated. She keeps being humiliated. This cop turns up in the picture played by Chris O'Dowd. Um, and she sort of maybe gets a bit on her feet, but in no way is she successful. She's not ambitious. She doesn't have any drive. Um, she's very much lower on the power situation. And that's that's how rom-coms work now. You don't mm. get rom-coms in which you get repeatedly women who are more successful than men. Ghostbusters, again, Dana is way more successful than Bankman. Right. And he's kind of into that. Um, working girl Melanie Griffith gets Harrison Ford by pretending to be more successful than mm. him. I mean, yeah. I hate the ending of that movie. I agree with Susan Faludi in Backlash saying it's completely kind of anti-feminist, the ending where she's like this baby doll and he packs a lunch for her. The whole thing's right. weird. But... <laughs> Up till then, it's kind of awesome. And Sigourney Weaver, who is humiliated in the movie, but is a powerful woman. I mean, all the people you see in that movie are kind of powerful women. Right. So we've got a lot of, you know, we're living in this era now of of reboots and remakes. Uh, in fact, including exciting news, we've got Michael Keaton, it seems, returning to The Cowl. Yeah. Uh, Rick Moranis is returning to Honey, uh, I Shrunk the Kids franchise. <laughs> And I'm still holding on hope that Peter Weller may at least voice RoboCop in RoboCop Returns, <laughs> if if and when that's ever made. What are your feelings about the, it, it, considering what we talked about earlier in the sort of machine that we have now that is the film business, hopes, any hopes for them still capturing the essence of what these films once were? I think it was just such a completely different time that... Mm the idea of being able to capture that magic is really hard. And I think, you know, like you look at Paul Feig's Ghostbusters, I really wanted that to succeed. I, like I said, I like Paul Feig. I like the idea of making it all women. Um, but, you know, it's how movies are made now is so different. You just look at the look of that movie. It was clearly all done on stage sets where so much of the yeah. charm of Ghostbusters is done on the New York streets. And the special effects 
in that in the modern one are so slick. Part of what is so adorable about Ghostbusters is that they're so shonky and ridiculous mm-hmm. looking. So it'd be really hard to capture it. The one I'm interested in is Bill and Ted Three, because mm-hmm. um, that's kind of all the same guys doing it. It is, as far as I know, Ed Solomon still writing it. Yes. Um, it is Keanu and uh, and Alex Winter is still starring in it. I'll be interested to see if that captures it i don't i i think honey i shrunk the kids i'm so thrilled rick moranis is coming back on the screen i adore rick moranis um but i don't know if he can carry it off on his own i think if the overall movie around them has changed so much it's hard to see how one guy back from the 80s plonked in can rescue the whole film right um so do you um hmm. do you find that um yeah, being so immersed in uh, film lore, an '80s film lore as you are, do you just spot '80s tropes and characters everywhere? Do you see things through a lens of of 1980s f- films? I do, and I kind of see life through the lens of a 1980s film. I'm always really sad that I don't get to have a 1980s soundtrack in my life. And <laughs> most of my Spotify playlists are various '80s soundtracks, so mo- mm-hmm. so songs from all the different '80s movies that I just kind of put into different mood groups and then I play however, however I'm feeling. Um, I find that um, the in time song, the Robbie Rob song from Bill and Ted, the amazing, the allegedly amazing song that Bill and right. Ted write that saves the planet. That's a really great song to walk mm. home to. Um, so things like that I get disappointed with. And what I, but what I love is spotting eighties actors in other stuff. So I'm always mm. excited to spot Bonnie Bedelia in other stuff. She plays Bruce Willis's wife in Die Hard, for example. Sure. Um, I was completely obsessed with always spotting the actor whose name just slipped my mind. That's terrible. Um, who's the headmaster in breakfast club and the uh, police sergeant in die hard. Um, I used to see him popping up in loads and right. sadly he died a few years ago because mm. I really wanted to interview him. So all that I get very excited by. Yeah. So, you know, usually we ask our guests if I can remember to do this, whether the 1980s was the best for something. But I think we've already established it. I guess I would ask you if the 1980s was the best decade for a film. I guess that's a really broad way of putting it. But Definitely the best decade for movies. I would also argue in a lot of ways the best decade for music videos, for soundtracks, for, for songs even. I would I mean, I, I fully support 80s, 80s songs, 80s pop music, but, but far and away. It's the best decade for movies. It's just got everything. It perfected every genre. And I honestly don't think as many movies have endured uh, from any single decade as they have from the 80s. Very good. Thanks so much for your time, Hadley. We appreciate it. Thank you, Will. I really enjoyed it. So, Ray, uh, earlier you and I talked about some of the things we learned from 80s movies. And I was able to get a little more wonky with Hadley Freeman about films and maybe the lessons we've learned from them. But what did we learn from our very own podcast about 80s pop culture today, if anything? Well, as usual, we learned something. Maybe I'm not being specific enough. What did we prove? Oh, oh, what did we prove? Yes, that's what I really meant to ask you. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt Uh that everything you need to learn about life can be learned from 1980s movies. That's right, kids. Get out your rental card. Get some dollars from your dad's uh, ashtray, wherever he keeps it. Go down to the store. Learn something. Get out there and live some life, everybody. And we'll talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.